the harshest of operating conditions. Large-scale investment, planning, and commitment places the offshore sector in a league all on its own, where the stories of people aren't found anywhere else. From safety to operations to new technology, we look to break down this often mystified industry and shed light into the unknown. You're listening to the Oil & Gas Offshore Podcast with your host, Andy Lash. Kevin, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. We're here in wonderful Houston, Texas. It's a beautiful day today. Gorgeous day, absolutely. You a fan of the Astros? I am. I'm watching the game last night. Yeah, wonderful game last yes, night. It was fun. It was fun. You don't, by chance, have tickets for tomorrow night at all, do you? No, no, <laughs> no. I, I checked them out in the, the bank account. Yeah. Really quite that so <laughs> i'm in the same boat yeah. so no you're in good company well kevin thank you again thank you for coming out you are the tidewater project engineer we're going to talk about all all things engineering with tidewater learn a little bit about you know what you're doing to support the fleet roll out some new initiatives some different programs and learn a little bit about yourself just want to start off by thanking Tidewater. Tidewater owns and operates the largest fleet of offshore support vessels in the industry. With over 60 years of experience supporting offshore energy exploration and production activities worldwide. If you're interested in support for your maritime operations, you can learn more about Tidewater through their website at www.tdw.com. So awesome. We're here in their office. So it's nice. It's the first one at time I've got to come out here. So Kevin, if we could start with just a little bit about yourself and how you got to where you are today. Sure. Again, thanks for having me here. Yeah. So I graduated with a bachelor's of science in naval architecture and marine engineering from University of New Orleans. Graduated in 2015. And I actually came on to Tidewater two years before I graduated as an intern and then got hired straight onto the company. Sort of made my way up through the ranks, started off as a staff engineer who works for the project engineers and now I'm a project engineer myself. So no time offshore or no time offshore. So I'd be considered shoreside engineer. Okay. This is all all things I'm learning as well, yeah. all the different sides. So sounds like a fun history getting you here here. Seems like a fantastic company to land at right out of school. Right, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. It was incredibly fortunate to to get the position and it was really all sort of by happenstance that I ended up with a, an internship at Tidewater. And yeah, it just flourished into a, a professional career. I think I just met, how long have you been here? So six years in six total. Years? So four years as a staff, en- or staff engineer or an engineer, and then two years as an intern. Has it all been here in Houston? No, no, no. So we started off, you'll, you'll notice a lot of our, our engineer staff here. All, we all came from UNL, from University of New Orleans. And that's where our originally our office was based out of New Orleans. And so a lot of a lot of our recruitment happened, or really just a lot of our resumes came from UNL. So it was a pretty specific crop there. Yeah, we just kept hiring the UNO guys. Because, I mean, it's, it's really easy to, to work during the school year if your college is right down the road. Yeah, so. absolutely. And it was, you know, Naval Architecture Marine Engineering is an incredibly small, unique major. And there's only a couple countries in the, or a couple colleges in the country that offer majors. So just really fortunate to have Tidewater Marine in New Orleans and right down the street we have Naval Architecture and Marine Engineering College. How many people are in the engineering team roughly for Tidewater? I think right now we're about six, about six or seven people. It's actually it's actually quite small for yeah. when you look at our operation versus you know the the manpower behind it. It's a yeah, it's a pretty small group. Well, well, that kind of rolls me into my next question, which would be, what does the day to day, you know, workload or work life look like for an engineer with Tidewater? Right. So Tidewater is 
broken up into several different geo markets. And we have a project engineer assigned to each one of those geo markets or maybe a couple of geo markets. And that was one of the one of the things I wanted to express to you is that with having a project engineer that is regionally assigned, we can really start to look at those different economic, any sort of challenges that may arise regulatory in each specific part of the world. And we have a person that is relatively familiar with any local issues that you may you may find. So there's there's roughly you said about six of you. So right. what are the how does it kind of break up? So me, I'm in charge of sort of Mediterranean technical support and the USGOM. Then we have another person that does South America, so Brazil, a couple of the Guyana sort of area, and then we have guy that's in West Africa or supports West Africa. Everybody's here in Houston, and then we have another person that is over sort of the Middle East, Southeast Asia. And then we have a couple people sort of sprinkled in between there that are helping out other regions. Okay. And what is like, I guess, what specifically are you doing as an engineer? I mean, you're not building vessels and things like that, but maintaining them, right? Correct. Correct. So really we focus on two different types of tasks in this office and probably consider them corporate or general tasks. And then we have regional tasks. Those regional tasks are your bids and proposals. So making sure that when a bid comes in, we fill out the technical specifications correctly. And then for a new vessel or for real no, this payers? is this is just for, for a charter. For a charter. So okay. we get a request for proposal or whatever and we, we, we fill out the, the technical sheet for what what is what are the boat's characteristics, right? Gotcha. Well in that process a lot of times you'll find that okay the the vessel isn't doesn't meet certain requirements, but our job is to figure out how to make that make it work. Put the puzzle together. Put the puzzle together. Yeah. And come up with cost effective ways to to make it happen. And so that's that's probably a pretty big part of our job, just just going through these proposals and figuring out how to make boats work. And in today's economic climate, you have to be sort of creative on a yeah. couple of things, so it always keeps you on your toes. But also with those regional tasks, we're talking about regulatory issues that come up on the boats. Say they want to change, make a modification. We need to make sure that the class society of the vessel is aware of the change and everything's properly documented. So documentation and keeping up with classes is a pretty important part of that. Then we have the sort of the, the corporate tasks. So these are fleet-wide tasks that are not necessarily regional regional tasks or area-specific tasks. And each one of the engineers has their own little sort of niche that they, they get into. So ballast water management plans was one of the big ones in the last last year. We have one person dedicated to creating all of the ballast water management plans for the global fleet. Me, I'm the the battery guy. They call me the Batman. <laughs> and uh, so I'm the one that goes out and looks at all the different battery systems and potential candidate vessels throughout the fleet. So yeah. Which that's that's kind of industry leading kind of stuff right there, right? Like that's that's the next wave of maybe advanced vessel, I don't know what you call it specifically. Right, right. Power plants. Yeah, yeah. So mm-hmm. your your prime movers sort of and yeah, that that's sort of what we're we're looking at as well. I think that you're you're totally right is the battery systems are going to be the next the next big thing. There's a lot of challenges with battery systems, particularly through operations. So how are you going to let us use this battery? And this is going to have to be a sort of collaboration, a collaborative project between the oil companies and Tidewater. And everybody needs to get together and we need to decide, okay, what is the safest way that we can operate these, safest and responsibly, but 
still recognizing the efficiency gains that we could possibly get from it. And they're tremendous. They really are. And the, the safety issue is just lithium ion batteries and stuff like that, or batteries in general can... Right, right. So you do have your, your fire, obviously. Fire is yeah. like the last thing we That's, want on a, bet, on a yeah. boat, right? <laughs> but there's also operational concerns. You know, our, our vessels, generally they're, they're DP2 vessels. So there's a certain amount of redundancy within within the entire ship. And that's DP being dynamic positioning. Dynamic positioning. So two dynamic positioning systems? So just... it's 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 one one system. However, okay. there are redundancies built in the system. Gotcha. And so when we go up to a rig, we want to be in our most redundant sort of configuration we could possibly go, especially and and it's all about what task are you doing? How risky is that is that task? And right now operations or a lot of operations say you need to have two engines on either side of your bus. So if one side of the bus goes down, you don't take out the other side, you've got 50% of your your power left. Well, with the battery, it sort of adds a little bit of complexity to it. And so really working out how can we use that battery? What will you, what will you accept? What do we think is the best practice? So it's going to be this really interesting collaborative sort of effort to really recognize or realize the full potential of VSS. Awesome. Energy storage systems. Yeah. So I yeah. Clarify. yeah, we got to watch abbreviations. I, yeah, I know. try to go to try to clarify those whenever I can. But so to just kind of recap, the biggest part of your day to day is kind of you get your customers reaching out saying, I need to do this job and you get to specify this is the right vessel, this would work. And and then from there, it would go out to like operations. and Right. Well, so first it comes from our commercial team. Mm-hmm. They bring it to us and operations, the local operations will be in the loop. But, and, and normally the vessel, we don't get to pick the vessel because it's whatever is available, you know, at okay. the time. So it's it's really, you know, here's... How, a, does, it, how does this vessel work for right, what you're doing? Gotcha. Right, right, right. Here's a square peg, put it in the round hole yeah. type of thing. <laughs> yeah. And we always seem to make it work, so... Awesome. Yeah, it's it sounds fun. <laughs> it sounds like a lot of challenges and, and challenges are good. Challenges are what get you through the day, keep your mind working. And so with those challenges, what do, what do you look at? What, what does Tidewater look at as like a safe, reliable, ideal vessel? Right. So we haven't been through a new construction cycle in a very long time. So uh, these, a lot of the, that sort of deciding has, was made several years ago, but I can tell you that if you look at our fleet, you'll notice that there's, there's certain classes that we have several sisters in that class. And, and really when you're looking for a, a vessel, you want to have a designer that's reputable and a reputable design. So, and then that's why you'll find we've, we've done the same boat over and over again. I mean, there's a repeat repeatability sort of aspect to it, but also uh, sourcing equipment right. is, is a lot easier. Kind of economy um, of scale and right. consistency. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So I guess that's sort of your first line of defense or when, when you're trying to get a safe, reliable vessel. And then it really goes into your quality control. So we have sort of two layers of quality control. We have the guys that are on site, and we have some great site superintendents that will go out and make sure everything's being done to the drawings. And then we have our back office quality control. And that would be me or another project engineer that's over the new construction project. And they're going to go through all of the drawings, and they're going to make sure that they're up to Tidewater safety standards, Tidewater's technical standards, and then put their seal approval on it, and it'll be built. Awesome. How does it work for repairs and and all that, you know, just operating repairs and maintenance and PM cycles. How does that work on a vessel? So we have a we have a, a planned maintenance system. So it's all computerized. The vessel will do their planned maintenance. They'll record it on a computer, 
And then we run reports in the office just seeing exactly what was done last month. Yeah, so it's actually a pretty seamless system. Yeah. They've done a good job of it. Is it done, I mean, some of it done out out at sea or is it all done inshore? Yeah. So they'll have they'll do some some out at sea. It really depends on on what their availability is. Can they can they accomplish the, the maintenance or or if it's safe to accomplish that that maintenance task out at sea. So I mean you wouldn't be working on, you know, major equipment yeah. while you're sitting next to a rig or something. That would be a bad idea. Yeah. <laughs> But certainly, so they'll, they'll, they'll guess get the low-hanging fruit when they're either on standby or something, and then when they come back in, they can handle the, the more major stuff. And I'm used to, kind of make this example often so far on the show, but I, you know, I'm used to the DOT world and the road transport, you know, like, like a tank vessel. We have a one-year certification. We have five-year certifications. We have, you know, all these annual inspections where you have to put in a shop and do all this stuff. I, w- I would imagine there's similar things that apply to a vessel. And- right. So the, the maintenance intervals, it depends on what kind of piece of equipment. It's generally done by running hours. And so really all that is is baked into, well, we manually put it in, but then it's baked into our PMS and those intervals will come up and it's the, the crew just sort of looks at, okay, how many hours? And it pops up, flags it, and they do the maintenance and it's all done. Now, I'm not the maintenance guy here. So that then that would be a totally different group. For- yeah, yeah. So we actually have a completely separate group that handles okay. nothing but our main. It's a small group, but they they do some really good work. Yeah, it, it's super interesting. I just like learning about all of it. Now, one thing that you are a part of and, and starting to work on is uh, fuel management systems, right? Throughout right, the fleet. Right. So I've been working with with Fuel Tracks and some other companies for several years now. Got a really good relationship with Fuel Tracks. And their product has been, I mean, it's, it's saved us countless times. It's been a tremendous wealth of knowledge. Trying to get fuel consumption figures on a, on a boat, especially that's not like, so you start looking at these cargo ships, it's sort of easier to find those fuel consumption numbers because they're doing one mission the entire time. With PSVs, they're doing so many different modes of operation, whether they're sitting in DP or they're sitting in standby, or they're trying to do any sort of operation where the weather changes. So you have these a very dynamic fuel consumption sort of profile there. And it was tremendously challenging just to look at the midnight reports because the vessel sent in midnight reports and look at, okay, what is your fuel consumption? Because well, how many different things were you doing on this one day that you sent me this midnight report? So it's, it's really challenging just to look at a 24-hour snapshot of a boat's operation and determine what its fuel consumption is. Well, the fuel tracks we can look at, you know, up to the second or up to the minute fuel reports and we can tell exactly what's going on. They do so so I guess there's a there's a couple things that that fuel tracks enables you to do. One is obviously operate the boat more efficiently. There's actually a boat in the Mediterranean I was looking at a couple couple weeks ago and you could watch the captain's throttle application change according to what fuel tracks was saying. It was it was truly impressive and I think it came out to be like 9 or 10% savings in fuel. So if they listen to it, it's it's very it's very effective. It's an incredibly effective tool. But also, when you operate the vessel more efficiently from a fuel standpoint, you're, you're operating it from a maintenance standpoint efficiently. So you can maybe cut down on some running hours. You can, you know, put enough engines online or enough engines that you need and you don't have something running at low loads or something like that, yeah. which is a diesel engine's worst nightmare. So, and then you have the sort of the third part, which is the fuel theft. And everybody knows fuel theft is a big concern of a lot of the oil companies. And it's absolutely a tool that we can use to identify that that sort of activity and we can remedy it real time. And when, when you say fuel theft, I mean, 
are we talking like pirates like coming out and stealing fuel or is it your customer pays for your operating fuel and you guys are maybe using more or less than you charge for all of it sorry <laughs> let's not yeah let's not go in and okay that just because that might be i don't want to sure talk sure, sure. about that kind of stuff okay but you're you're managing, so you, you don't want to tell you don't want to tell a person that is susceptible to doing fuel theft how to do it. Ah, gotcha, gotcha. Okay, no, I understand, I understand. I'm just trying to think of you know how that works. Is how much fuel you carry on board an issue time to time? I mean, do you when a vessel leaves port or is it topped out full, or do you kind of manage based on your ship your your trip? how much fuel you're going to take. Right. So it's it's totally done by the charterer. How much do they want to carry? We have a certain minimum amount that we would carry depending on the size of the boat. So, I mean, for generally when we do like loading conditions to make sure a boat can carry something, we'll put like 250 cubic meters or something. It's some like standard value that gives us enough reserve just in case you know, something bad happens. So, yeah, it, it can vary from, I mean, some of our smallest maybe 250, 200 cubes, all the way up to over 1,000 cubic meters of of fuel. So it just depends on the client's requirements. What you're doing and how long you're going to be out. Well, if they need, are we carrying cargo fuel or are we just carrying fuel for ourselves? That's sort of what Gotcha. Okay. Okay. All right. That helps. Yeah. Are there any other fuel management systems besides fuel tracks that you guys are looking at, or are they really leading the way? Because because I'm talking to them tomorrow, actually, for a show. So oh, I'm, yeah. I'm just learning. I'm learning about <laughs> them before I go talk to them tomorrow. So it's funny enough. It's sort of become almost almost a regional thing. So in West Africa, there's a preference towards Engine I, which is another provider by Royston. So. And and the ultimate purchasing decision does come from the area. So we'll, in this oh. office, we'll sort of recommend, hey, use this, use that, or here are your options, and then they'll they'll pick after that. So I guess since Engine I sort of got a, a footprint in there already, I guess there's some the service in West Africa is, is difficult to do. So the fact that they already have a little bit of service history over there makes it a little bit easier. And the preferred vendor in West Africa, but most other places, especially Gulf of Mexico, we're using field tracks and then in the Mediterranean we have a lot of field tracks in the Mediterranean. It sounds like a really cool system. I'm in, I'm real really looking forward to learning about yeah, it, to yeah, it tomorrow. They, they definitely some quality quality guys over at field tracks. And and you know field tracks is awesome cuz whenever you ask them to do something and this is not a field tracks <laughs> yeah, no, no, it's not. But whenever you ask them to do something or or like any even down to the web side of things mm-hmm. like we want I want to see something a little bit differently on my when I log into your web page. They'll do it, and it takes no time at all. Nice. That was one of the, I guess, another benefit. We're working in some of those EU sort of environmental zones in the Mediterranean, and at the end of each drilling campaign, the oil company wanted to see all of our our emissions. So I was able to go in, and it was a request I made to Fuel Tracks that said, "Hey, I'd like to be able to export all of the data." Yeah. So I was able to export all the data for months for several vessels, probably four or five boats and crunch all the numbers into this little script that I wrote and output it into this emissions form. And we were just able to hand that in. It took a maybe multi-day task and made it into a one-hour task. And you did this good. after the fact, right? Like it wasn't something you already had in place. Right. They yeah. already just, they still had the data. They still saved it. It was still Absolutely. archivable. That's, that's great. In addition to like fuel management systems, are there any other technologies that you guys are working on? I know you referenced batteries, but right, right. So we do. We have three three battery projects right now going on. We have two in the North Sea, then we have another one going on. What we call an MMC eight eight seven, which is one of those sister boats that I was telling you about. We've actually got twelve 
of the exact same design built in the same shipyard. And so that gives us a really high repeatability factor. Yeah. And it was this, it's a system that we sort of tailor-made with Kongsberg. It's a fully removable battery pack. So we, we put sort of the electronic bits on the boat, and then we just have a big battery. We just plug in. It's like, you know, like a Duracell, you know, just yeah. stick on the back deck <laughs> and you go for it. So it's going to give us the ability to, I mean, we'll have, a, have the ability to make a battery-ready vessel which I don't think has been done before. Cool. And the real, the push with batteries is kind of taking the the peaks and valleys off of your engine curve, your engine operating yeah, curve. So it's sort of a, a threefold thing there. We're looking at peak shaving. It's just what you're, what you're calling your peaks and valleys. So whenever the, instead of the engine ramping up, you know, the battery will take, take that load. So that's going to give you some efficiency gains in pretty much every operating mode. So, DP, it'll give you some, a little bit of transit. You'll get a little bit sort of sitting on standby. You can get some efficiency gains. And then we have spinning reserve, which is in a DP vessel. When you're sitting next to a rig, you'd like to have that redundancy. Well, with a battery, we can have that redundancy but not have another ba- another engine online. Oh, so okay. we can reduce the numbers of engines, and that reduces your runtime and reduces your fuel consumption. Yeah. So you, your maintenance costs go down too. So while you're cruising out to do your job, mm-hmm. you're kind of shaving the peaks and valleys off, shaving. charging the battery, right? You and can, then you, you get out there battery. and you've got it as like backup extra right. power. You have it as a, a backup power source. That's cool, exactly right. And then also when you when you tend to put four engines online, sitting at a rig in really benign weather, you're going to be running your engines at like 25 percent load. And once again, diesels don't like to run with that low load. Right. So you can shut a couple engines offline, jack up that load on the engines, you know, 60%, and put the battery online just just for a backup power source. I didn't preface this one, but is there anything about IMO 2020, like any of the fuel changes that you guys are working on? Or is it just you're you just going to use a different fuel? Well, we, we already use low-sulfur fuels, so it's not really that big of a concern for us. Obviously, we, we do want to focus on emissions controls. So at least being able to know what our emissions are. Yeah. Uh, I think that's sort of step one there. And yeah, w- I think we've done a, a pretty good job of, of trying to wrangle that in. And we are taking steps to to computing what those emissions will be. Yeah, it sounds like, I mean, it sounds like stuff we've already talked about are all helping with emissions, right? I mean, the, the batteries, the fuel management, all that stuff's giving you more real tangible data to then calculate emissions and figure out maybe where you can make improvements. Right. Yeah. That's our goal, at least. You know, that's what we're, we're striving for. Awesome. Sounds really good. Anything that you wish you would have known before you started in the industry? No. Because, no? <laughs> and that's sort of what I preface the whole talk about or with the internship. So as far as if any young professionals yeah. listen, internships are absolutely key. They prepare you and they eliminate those uncertainties. So when you when I came on board, I'd been doing my job for two years. Yeah. But then also you want to make sure that there's variability in your internship life. So I wouldn't stay at one one company. Maybe try a couple, see where you think you fit. What do you like the most? Go to that company and apply for your professional career. But yeah, there, there's really not a whole lot that I was uncertain of, yeah. or unaware of. Well, you got, got to test here. drive the car before you exactly. before you bought it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, it was a, it was a good experience. And I mean, you you get the, the the fortune of sort of being in school and at your workplace. 
simultaneously, right? So they, you can see how each one complements each other. And frankly, you can, you can sort of figure out what things you should be listening to yeah. and what stuff you're going to be like, okay, yeah, well. Which is probably exactly the opposite of what the <laughs> academics want me to say right now, but <laughs> don't matter. This is real world, right? This is it's the real stuff. So yeah, I was able to actually take what I was learning at school and seeing how it applied in my my work life. And I mean, it helps you. First of all, it helps you remember it a lot better because you you know you're you're doing it at school and at work. Well, I mean, you went to school to be in the maritime industry, right? So so do you have some background from you know before college that said, hey, this is the direction I want to go, or? Nope, not at all. No. <laughs> I wanted to be an aerospace engineer. Oh, okay. Yeah, I wanted to go to Auburn. <laughs> Long story short, I ended up at UNO, and I, I couldn't be happier. I think yeah. it was, it's a great bang for your buck. It's a tremendous school. The, the program is absolutely second to none. In general, I think, at least for me, I know, like, I know very little about maritime. Like, I'm learning every episode. But I think that that's, that's probably pretty widespread throughout most of the public, right? Like, everybody's on land, but maybe Houston course new orleans people on the gulf coast a little more interaction with maritime operations but most people don't know much about it really i think right right and in southern louisiana is a it's a very unique maritime sort of place everybody is sort of in the workboat space so we all sort of deal with the same stuff you know you go to you go to high school with some of the kids that's parents own some of the the big uh, osv companies and you know, it's it's a very close-knit community, and you'd be incredibly surprised at how many people I've run across that I either went to high school with or, or went to college with in the industry. And it doesn't even need to be like a naval architect or anything. It could just be a, an electrician that I knew from high school or something, and all of a sudden I see him working on a boat, you know. Yeah. It's really neat. It's a really cool community, and it's a nice community. Everybody's pretty nice. Everybody I've run across so far has been super nice. It's yeah. been fun. Anything else you want to mention anything about yourself or Tidewater? Not really. There was some preventative maintenance stuff. I know we talked about plan maintenance. Yeah. And really the next step to plan maintenance is preventative maintenance. And there's a certain amount of plan maintenance that is integral to preventative maintenance, you know, to preventing equipment failure. But another, I think one of the next steps of the industry is going to be this whole like internet of things yeah. type of uh, vessel where you have a sensor on every single piece of equipment. And there's a lot of subtle changes in equipment, the way that it's working, right, that can tell you if there's going to be a failure. So like rotating machinery, all of a sudden there's a vibration sensor right. and it picks up a slightly different vibration. And you can sort of get an idea. And you can actually trend that data over time, right? And you can tell, okay, this is about to fail. Well, right now that technology is sort of in its infancy and it's going to require a huge subset of of standard operating parameters for every single piece of equipment that ever existed, right? So creating that database full of those parameters is going to be a challenge. It's going to take a, just a lot of heartache. But, you know, if it's done, you can probably save a good amount of money. And downtime, uh, unexpected equipment failure is not a good thing by any stretch of the imagination, no. right? So, so I think in the future that's going to be, that's going to be the next one of the next big technologies is the whole internet of things talking to each other. Does that roll into predictive analytics or anything? Right. Do you, do you right. are you guys doing that kind of stuff today? Not yet, not yet. We've been approached by a couple of companies. I think we're still just sort of trying to get our hands on everything, sort of feel out, okay, what equipment should we be looking at? You know, what are the sensors that we would need? Yeah, so we're definitely dipping our toe in the water, but we haven't dove in just yet. That's cool. I, I find that part real interesting, just 
being able to to use data to save costs, but also it makes it safer, right? It, right. It's going to improve life for for lots of people. So, and why change why why change a bearing if you don't have to? Yeah, you know, that's just additional potential to either mess it up. Or I mean, and any sort of maintenance work, there's a there's a risk involved, either a safety risk or an operational risk or something. So yeah, it's a neat technology that could be pretty helpful. Awesome. Anything else? I think that's it. That's good. I really enjoy talking with you. It's very interesting. I really appreciate Tidewater supporting the show, and I am hoping to get on a vessel here real soon. I was gonna get out so. Some more, some cool stuff to come. We're gonna to try to shoot an episode on one of the vessels. And, oh, that would uh, be cool. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. And then, and then we're going to the uh, the workboat show in New Orleans. All right, so that'll I'll be see fun. you there. Oh, you'll be yeah, out there. I'll be out there. For yeah, that. we're gonna do. I think we think we're gonna do a live podcast at the show as part of the launch. So yeah, there's lots of cool stuff to come. That'll be awesome. Really looking forward to it. Yeah, you got a couple good couple of weeks ahead of you. I tell you. Yeah, the rest of the year is going to be real fun. So, Especially on that boat, man. Get that good food. Yeah? That food's delicious. <laughs> I'd, I'd go work out before you uh, you get on the boat, though. You know, go like a good, like, I don't know, juice cleanse and get yourself some. Because it's going to be, it's it's gonna not be some food. heavy food. Well, <laughs> yeah, I don't know if I'm going to get, like, actually get to go offshore or not. I'm hoping so. I hope I can get, get out there. But so far, we're going to go to... Tour one in port and check okay. that out. So. Yeah, get down to Fushan, man. Fushan? Fushan is like the the mecca of, of work boats. It's incredible. Nice. Yeah. I'll get my drone out and see if I can fly around. Boy, it. yeah. You can get some good <laughs> videos out there. Cool. Well, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Andy. Everybody listening, I hope you enjoyed the show. If you can, if you if you could do so to, to really support the show, if you take a few minutes, leave a review, leave a comment, and leave an honest review. You ain't going to hurt my feelings. I'd rather take constructive criticism and, and, and lead to make an improvement. So put those out there. I really appreciate you listening. Probably read some of the reviews on uh, future shows, so I might hear your name here in the future. Again, thank you, everybody. We'll catch you on the next one. Here's the announcements. Hey, everyone. Alex here with the events on deck for November. First of all, we had our best turnout ever for our latest happy hour in Houston with our panel discussion. So thanks to everyone who attended, and we hope to keep offering you guys value in the future. Be sure to listen here for any future happy hours. The events on deck for November include OGGN's second Denver happy hour on November 6th from 4 to 6 p.m. The cost of attendance is $20, a portion of which goes to local charities Safe House Denver and Oil Field Helping Hands. On November 12th at Minute Maid Stadium, IBM's Oil Field of Dreams, Data, Digitization, and Disruption. This event is free for all OGGN subscribers. OGGN's Mark LaCour will be doing a live podcast with ExxonMobil and his 2020 oil and gas predictions. On November 12th through 14th is Procurement Week in Sydney, Australia. Our travel partner, BCD Travel, will be sponsoring Day 2 of Procurement Week in Sydney. Day 2 has content focused on the construction, mining, and energy sectors as well as an indirect procurement leaders forum, which encompasses travel. Industry leaders will be discussing value-driven procurement approaches, evolving technologies, and the changing landscape. And drinks are on BCD at the end of the day. The Houston chapter API Energy Petroleum Club will be meeting on November 12th in Houston. Speaker Shane McElroy will be talking about the sustainability of electric fracturing. We have another free event on deck this month for our subscribers. The Top Coder Innovation Summit will be taking place on November 14th in Houston, Texas. This event is the premier innovation event for industry leaders. 
You'll have the opportunity to attend panels on innovation and emerging technologies and meet with the YPRO and Topcoder executive teams. Lastly, the Algeria Oil and Gas Summit is happening on November 19th through 21st this year. Alnaft will be sharing onshore and offshore updates for Africa's leading gas producer and opportunities for independent oil and gas companies. And don't forget, if you guys would like to receive these events each month via email, click Get Mark's Monthly Events email link in the show notes of any OGGN podcast. Hope you guys have a great month. Tune in next week for another episode of the Oil & Gas Offshore Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at oilandgasoffshore.com.